Well, this is a joy to, to be with you and a joy to open God's Word with you. I'm grateful to, to be with you and grateful to have my family here. I had to lean over to my wife. It's actually been 26 years. I almost forgot. So it's uh, 25 was last year. We've been married 26 years, and uh, we do have four of our children here, the three youngest, which I call the three babies, and um, Emmy. Uh, is there. She is 16. And then a set of twins on her side. Those are identical twins. We had five, five kids, and we thought the quiver was full. And the Lord graciously gave us uh, not one more, but two more, a set of twins. In fact, I remember being in the doctor's office in the ultrasound room, and we realized we were going to have twins. And all I could think is that we needed to get a larger van right at that moment, you know. But they have been such a blessing. And then my son, Kyle, here is a student at UC San Diego, and uh, joy to have him with us today. But this is a, a blessing to be with you. I was in Santa Clarita this week for a couple weddings, and then I taught at the Master's Seminary, and so I was a little closer than being up in Kingsburg. As Huey said, that is, it's just above Visalia and below Fresno. And so we're having a great time. It's a different feel for us because we're not in the midst of a kind of a larger city. We're in the midst of a smaller town, and I'm around farmers. I'd say a good half of our church is people who work in the farming industry, but we're really enjoying it. We've been there less than a year, so I think I understand you guys in the midst of a pastoral transition not always easy, both for the church or for the man, but we'll pray God's unique blessing uh, through that for you. And I am grateful to be back with Huey and some others and uh, thankful for the years gave us, the, Lord, the years that the Lord gave us in the college ministry back at Grace, so formative in, in my own life and a joy to minister there before I went out to be a a senior pastor. So really, really good to, to be with you, and I want the Word to be able to encourage you. I'd ask you to take your Bible, look over to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, there is a little just scripture tucked back there in the Word of God on, uh, I think we titled it, Shepherding God's People. And I want you to just focus on it. I don't particularly have any kind of uh, agenda today. There, nobody told me to, hey, address this. Um, I just, it was on my heart. I want to encourage you with it. And uh, let's follow along. I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 5, and then I'm going to begin. You follow along. I'm reading from the New American Standard in verse 12. He says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, and see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always and pray without ceasing in everything. Give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We can stop right there. What I want to do with our time this morning is just provide you from the Word of God with a biblical strategy for working with different kinds of people in the body of Christ, different kinds of people that you are going to interact with, that I am going to interact with. Now, as you approach chapter 5, you can see that the context there is the day of the Lord, that day of the Lord encompassing both what we call an extended period of time, but the second coming. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Now as to the times and and the epics, brethren, or epochs, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. 
And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. And then this exhortation, but you, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober for those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night, but we are of the day and so forth. You, you get the language there that the day of the Lord is approaching and the day of the Lord had not happened and he exhorted them to live holy. In fact, as you look at the teaching throughout the New Testament on the day of the Lord, I think it's pretty much summed up in verse 11. Glance down there. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. So in light of that coming day, we are not to be fearful. We are to be sober of the day. And verse 11, we're to encourage one another and build each other up. And it's not as though they haven't been doing that. Uh, Paul says, just as you are also doing. And so he's dealing with this theme in the, just the immediate context of the day of the Lord. Of course, if you go back, if you will, go back to chapter 1, just for a second to set this uh, context here. Paul is preaching to the Thessalonian church, and he says there in verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but it came in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And so he looks back to the time where these ones were actually in the world, the gospel was preached, and that gospel came in power and it came in the Holy Spirit. Of course, when we address the theme of the gospel, the gospel is not only the life of Christ, as you know, but the gospel includes even looking forward to that coming day. In fact, if you look down at 1 Thessalonians 1, look at verse 10. One of the characteristics of a redeemed man or woman is to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rec rescues us from the wrath to come. So one of the elements of the gospel is rather than living for ourselves, as John said in his testimony, it's to live for another. And instead of living only for the things of this world, we begin to live for the things of the coming world. And so here, our longing back to chapter 5 is the day of the Lord. Now, what Paul does, go back to chapter 5, is he first gives a series of duties for pastors. And you can see that, and it says that in verse 12 and 13. He's just giving various duties. But then he comes to verse 14 and 15, and he gives a series of duties for church members, okay? Or for those who are in the body of Christ. Look down at verse 14. Interestingly, you don't want to miss this. It says, we urge you, and then he uses this term, you can read it, brethren, okay? So understand that all I'm going to say in a moment, all that Paul says, is not an exhortation to the leadership, it's an exhortation to you. So I think so often we put so much focus on the leadership, and maybe rightfully so, but that's not whom this text is addressing, this text is addressing you this morning. It's addressing those who are in the body of Christ. It is for all the church to put into practice. Now, there are some scholars here at this text who really believe this admonition is to the leadership, that they would think that the leadership is to put into practice, verse 14, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and so forth. But I really don't think so. I think, as you can see in verse 14, this is addressed to the congregation as a whole. Certainly, leaders need to model this, but this is an exhortation to all of us. And so understand that as you sit under the Word of God, I am preaching this to you. This is not for deacons, elders, per se, but how you are to interact with one another in the body of Christ. And the Word of God gives some very specific instructions regarding your responsibility 
to each other and what you are to do with each other. Now, what's fascinating here is that in, their, in this passage, there's different conditions that need to be addressed in working with people. You could obviously see it, and I'm going to zero in on verse 14. You can see that there's some people who are unruly. There's some people who are faint-hearted. There are some people who are weak. And each of these needs special attention. In fact, I would say to you that as we work with people in the body of Christ, and I preach this to myself, it's important to employ the correct counsel to those we interact with. In fact, it's very frightening if you were to admonish someone who is weak, you would actually not be helping them. You could be hurting them. So the question is, what am I to do? What is my responsibility to the people in this church? What is my responsibility to the people in the greater body of Christ? What is my responsibility to those who are even in my family or an extended family? And what am I to do with it? And so what Paul does is he gives us three appropriate responses for dealing with people in the body of Christ, okay? I think it's just so important that we recognize this truth that comes from the Word of God. In each of these responses for dealing with different kinds of people, it's pretty easy to see. There's a condition that he describes, and then there's a command that you are to put into practice. And here's just as a great paradigm for shepherding God's people. But make no mistake about it. I just, I don't know why, I just feel imperative. This is your responsibility. And I have no idea where everybody sits in this church or where you lie or what you, you, know, what you think your responsibility is. But enough for me to say that Paul's not addressing this to the leadership. He says, and you can see it there, underline that, we urge you, brethren. And so here is your responsibility. It's kind of a biblical strategy for working with or counseling different people. And I would say that on a weekly basis, this comes back into my mind because as a pastor, I'm dealing with people all the time, and so are you. Let's look at these three um, focuses for dealing with people. Three responses. You can see the first one is admonish the unruly, verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. So he gives the condition first, then the command. But let's look at first the condition. He says the unruly, okay? And those who are unruly are, uh, it's just as an explanation of the word, are those who are disorderly. In fact, you could even use the word where it says admonish the unruly, you could say admonish the idle. In fact, if you're holding an NIV, if you're holding an ESV, it would actually use that word that you are to admonish those who are idle. In fact, just look over at 2 Thessalonians for a moment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, you can see how that word was used in 6. 3.6, we command you, brethren, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother, here's the word, who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. So he's speaking here about people who are unruly, and here you can see the unruly life is the ideal of someone who is idle. In fact, glance down at chapter 3. Let me see if it's there in verse 11. Look there, for we hear that some among you are leading, and then it uses this phrase, an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, what the word unruly means, if you can picture this, it's a military term, and it's a word literally that meant to be out of step. Out of rank. So if you're picturing a soldier, just put a word picture in your mind, and you're thinking about a group of soldiers just kind of in march, in cadence, in sequence. In fact, I still remember going to my brother when he graduated from Pendleton in the Marines. They marched in file. But here's what this word means. This is somebody who's not in rank. This is somebody who's not in line. This is a person that you might minister with, that you might live with, that might be your roommate. These people are not walking in discipline. They are out of step 
is what the word means. That's what it means. To be out of step, to be out of rank. It means to, it spoke of a soldier who broke rank. Here are people in the greater body of Christ who are irresponsible, okay? Who are disorderly. And often when you look in the scripture, it refers to those who are neglecting, if you will, their daily or even their spiritual disciplines. They are out of order. A simple way for me to put it is they are sinning, okay? Now, within this context, some were just neglecting their duties, and they were falling idle to corrupt disciplines because of their expectation of the Lord's coming. In fact, we don't have that problem too much today. Uh, We don't have too many people who are neglecting duties. We have more people who are caught up in the world itself, but they were just falling into lax living, if you will. So there's the condition described. Okay, but look at the command. Look back at the text. Verse 14, chapter 5, it says there that we are to what? To admonish them. Here is the command. It's to admonish them. The ideal here is to rebuke them. And you do so with understanding. Certainly in the Scripture, you do so with humility, but make no mistake about it. You do so with firmness. In fact, maybe some of you are familiar with that term in verse 14. That word admonish is simply the Greek term nutheteo. Okay, sometimes you hear that nuthetic counseling. And what nutheteo means here is to warn, to advise is the thought, to exhort them or here to admonish them. Now, what I find interesting is if you glance back up at verse 13, when it talks about leaders, it says that you esteem them very highly in their love, in love because of their work. And then it says, live in peace with one another. And I think it's somewhat intriguing that though it says to live in peace with one another, you and I, and in the body of Christ, are not to neglect if somebody is out of rank, out of step, you have a responsibility to admonish them and to warn them. And the thought is to exhort them. In other words, they must be checked. They must be warned. They must be stirred, if you will, to action. And the thought would be those in blatant disobedience need to be called to repentance. I mean, I would think as John was giving his testimony, as his sister or his mom, they're calling back. They're calling back. They're loving, but they're putting Christ on display. That's the idea here. In fact, the admonish word carries the idea of warning them of their pending consequences and their actions. Okay? So I had a guy in my office, I don't know, a couple months ago, who has left his wife, who has been unfaithful to his wife, who sat before me with his wife, and you don't think I was like being super kind to him. I said, listen, let me just be real honest with you. You are playing with fire. You are moving gently to him towards a path of destruction. And I'm exhorting you to get yourself back in your home today. And I looked at his wife. Would you take him back in if he came back? I would. And I exhorted him. In other words, I have a responsibility. You do. If someone's out of step and out of rank, you are not to coddle them. You are not to just be, would it be pleased and would it be okay if you didn't sin anymore? No, the scripture would say you have a responsibility to admonish them is the thought. To warn them. And the ideal is warn them of the the pending consequences. In fact, let me just show you another way that word was used. Look over in Colossians just for a second. It's a familiar word. You've seen it, but I just want you to touch it with your eyes. In Colossians, Paul uses it in a grand way. I love this. You've seen it. When he says in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, Christ, the antecedent, back in 27. And then he says, we proclaim him admonishing every man. There, there's the thought. I don't want to make more of this word. Paul looked at his pastoral duty and he said, I'm admonishing. And the ideal is exhorting and if need be rebuking and teaching every man that we may present every man complete in Christ. And so this happens all the time. You meet people. I had a student 
uh, sometime back who walked up to me and he said, Pastor, I have a, a problem. I said, what, what's the problem? He said, well, I drink. I said, well, you are claiming Christ and you do go to the master's college. When do you drink and where do you drink? He says, I drink in the dorms. I said, how do you drink in the dorms? He says, I walk around in the dormitory with a Coke can, and in the Coke can, he puts vodka and rum. And he told me that. Now, the question is, you, you have a young man tell you that. What do you do, whether it's that situation or... Well, listen, the Scripture tells me what to do. I, I'm not at loss what to do. Neither should you be. You are to admonish them. This brother is out of step. He's underage at that point. He signed the contract with the Master's College. He's not 21. This is a guy who broke rank. Now listen, I didn't crush him, put my arm around him, and I said, you need to stop. You need to stop sinning. You need to stop against your conscience. And I admonished him to do such a thing. You see, so I'm I'm thinking of some years back, I was speaking with a man who was in the throes of homosexuality. And I just began to talk to him about that and talk to him and talk to him and talk to him and talk to him. And finally, I had to get to the point where I said, brother, listen, there's more sins than this one, but this is a sin against God. In other words, I'm not at loss what to say to him. And I had to look at him and say, listen, if you love Christ and you want to follow Christ, then you need to follow him in holiness and purity. And when I told him that, I I just remember he got up out of his chair and bolted out the door and slammed the door on his way out, never seen him again. But my my point in telling you this is you're going to meet people and I'm going to meet people And that doesn't mean we're rude to people, but when you get somebody who's out of step and out of rank, the Scripture's going to tell you what you're to do. There's no question. You're to admonish that time. And there are that man, that person. There are times where a firm rebuke is to be given to those in the fellowship, to those whom you live with, okay? So there's a condition, there's a command. Admonish the unruly. That's not the only one, though. Look at verse 14. He says there's a second type of person that we're to encourage. He says, encourage. He says, the faint-hearted. I don't know if your scripture says, encourage the timid. But first, the condition. You got other people who are not out of step, fair. They're faint-hearted. And, and the Greek word is oligosukos, or gusukos, and it speaks of soul. In other words, there's people in the body of Christ who are not out of step. I just, it's not like one size fits all. It's not like if you went to a doctor and the doctor kept prescribing the same thing for everybody he saw, he would be guilty of malpractice. But listen, if you give the same advice to all the people you come into contact with, you'll be guilty of malpractice on the soul. So you got other people here, you see them, the condition is faint-hearted. So what does it mean? There's just some people who are worried There are some in the body of Christ who are discouraged. I think behind that word is the ideal of fearful. One commentator said these are people in the body, he said, who are overwhelmed by life itself. That could be you this morning. There's people that you're going to meet. There's people in the body today who literally are timid. In fact, if you really want a a, a literal ideal of what it means to be faint-hearted. It literally means short of soul. Sukos is soul. These people are short of soul. The ideal is they have little souls, if you will. They become easily discouraged, easily despondent. They despair in the face of adverse circumstances. It could even be their own sin. It could even be the difficulty of just living the Christian life. They are on the verge of giving up. You will meet people like that. They're faint-hearted. In fact, that word faint-hearted, we say in the Old Testament, but I wouldn't say in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament Greek translation, which is called the Septuagint, In Isaiah 54, 6, this word faint-hearted spoke of the forsaken wife in 54, 6. The rejected wife, okay? I met with somebody like this just in the last month at my church. She's a new believer. I know that the Lord redeemed her. I could see it all on her heart. I could see it on her affections. I could see how she... 
but, but she just tends to be a little faint-hearted. And, I, and when people like that come sit with me or they come sit with you, you have one responsibility to them. You've been given a command. Look at it in verse 14. You are to, what does it say? Encourage them. So the idle, the unruly, you admonish, but not these people. You encourage them. And the, the word just means to give hope. That's the command. You give hope to them. You, you, the ideal is you stimulate them to press on and endure. And you give them extra help to live the Christian life, it kind of expresses just a, a tender concern for them. In fact, I think it says in the NIV that you encourage the timid. And I think this was Paul, even in this book, where he said, if you go back, look at 1 Thessalonians 2. I think he used it there. When in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 8, he says, having a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you became, he says, uh, very dear to us. For we were called, brethren, working labor, hardship, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim the gospel to you. Look down at verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting, and here's the word, and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. And so there's the ideal. You're encouraging them. Enough for me to say that you do not, okay, fair? You don't rebuke these people. You don't exhort these people. You give them hope. You give them encouragement. I, you know, I'm just thinking of the person, this is really blunt to say this to you. Um, just A woman just talked to me a little bit back and told me, and I know she's a genuinely saved woman, but she said she's dealing with her anxiety and she's taking a prescription for that. I don't know what your stance on that. Usually we'd think, hey, tr trust in the Lord. What would you do with a person that came like that? And I decided at that point to say nothing to her. You say, why? Because she's a year in Christ. She's growing like a weed. She's going to grow into greater maturity. But I decided at that point, at that time, not to deal with that because she's just walking through a divorce. We'll get to it. But more than anything, this is a woman who's not so much out of step as this woman just tends to be faint-hearted. Is that fair? I felt like I could have crushed her with the wrong comment, you see? I felt like at that point, at that time, as I was praying right there, I didn't want to devastate her and say, oh, you shouldn't be on that. If you trust in the Lord, you shouldn't be on anything. It'd be real easy to say that. This is a woman who's had three divorces in her life. This is a woman who's just come to Christ. She's growing. I thought, let's give her some time to mature. So listen, you got people out of step. You admonish them, but you got people who are short of soul. You have a responsibility to encourage them. I remember not too long ago, I was in the Philippines, and I was speaking at a, at a pastor's conference, and that, that's a good thing. You're speaking at a pastor's conference, but you're speaking to men at a pastor's conference. And I was with a, another pastor friend of mine. I don't know if you know him, Alex Montoya. Uh, he's in the Spanish community. He's planted a number of churches. And Alex Montoya is just the man's man. And, you know, usually at one of those pastor's conferences, you're just, you're, you know, it's just high in testosterone. I mean, the guys are just, well, you know, you got to go you know, conquer the kingdom. And, and, um, and that's how it was. And while I'm there, I get an email, and I said, okay, I'll sit with this woman when I get back. I didn't really want to. I not want to. I just thought I'm getting back. I probably shouldn't have done it. This is a dear friend of our family, but she's in our church, and she's going through a horrendous divorce whose husband is a, is a multiple adulterer on her, enough to say that. And so I got back with her, and I probably shouldn't have made the meeting. I got back from the Philippines, I think, on Monday, and I made the appointment with her the next day on Tuesday. That's probably not wise. And so I went in there with another fellow pastor and another woman. An older woman came in, and here was this woman who's in the midst of this difficult divorce, okay? And I just, you know, I, I was just being pastor and just saying, here's what you need to do. 
you know? Here's how you need to handle that guy. Here's what my, you know, counsel to you would be. I told her, this guy's not coming back. You, you know, I just, just kind of, you understand, just a little short. I think I'm still fired up from the Philippines, you know? And uh, my wife catches me the next day. Hey, how'd that go with so-and-so? I said, really good, really good. Well, what'd you tell her? Well, I told her this, and I told her this. I said, I think it went really good. I think, Patty, I just wanted to put some strength in her and just wanted to let her know we're behind her and we stand with her. And then my wife said, did you tell her this? I said, yeah, I told her that. Did you tell her this too? Yeah, I told her that. Then I saw my wife's face begin to turn. And did you say this? And I said, yeah, I said that. And Scott, did you say this to her? nothing real wrong. I said, yeah, I said that. And I saw my wife just, her face was changing. I said, you don't think I handled that too right, do you? She goes, no, you did it, you know? And I just thought, oh, really? Really? Why weren't you there with me, you know? And so I had to go back to her as her pastor, as her shepherd, and say, listen, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? You say, what was the point? That woman didn't need my exhortation. That woman needed my encouragement, you see? She needed somebody to cry with her. She needed somebody to pray with her. She probably just needed me to listen and not say a word, and out I come, gift of exhortation, you know? And I just thought, I'm dealing with her, and I just say, would you forgive me for being a lame, is it this way or that way, a lame pastor with a capital L? I just thought, oh, Lord, these are your people, and I hurt one of your sheep. It would be like a doctor prescribing the wrong thing. I didn't handle her right. And I've had to learn this passage as we're working with people. You've got to understand the condition. Then you can give the command. But the unruly need to be admonished. The faint-hearted need to be encouraged. But there's a third person, third condition. Look in verse 14. It says there, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. And then it says this, help the what? The weak. In other words, there's the condition described is weak. That's those, who, those people in the faith, in the church, who are, it's different than just, um, you know, discouraged. The idea of the, the previous word, the faint-hearted. This one's a little further down, if you will. This one is just weak. And it could mean spiritually weak or frail. It's the ideal of without strength. And, and I think if I said, is it just spiritual weakness? I don't think so. I think it could be physical weakness. I think it could be. And the, but I also think it's addressing spiritual weakness. In other words, there's people in this body whom you know who are weak. You say, weak what way? Let me show you. Look over to Romans 14 for a second. Glance over there in your Bible. I think this is important that I show you this. You know this passage on the, on the freedoms, Christian liberties, and gray issues. But have you ever noticed the word? It's the same word back in our text. But Romans chapter 14, where Paul, after his masterpiece of the gospel, says this in 14.1, except the one who is what? Weak in the faith. Now that's a, you know, we could talk a lot about that. Except the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. You are to accept that person who is weak in the faith, okay? It's very clear there. In fact, look over just to the right there. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and, and, I, and I'm looking at this passage there in 8-7, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as, as it were, sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being, what? Weak is defiled, down to verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 8, 12. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it is, what, weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, it's interesting. In Corinthians 8, Romans 14, 
It talks about weak in faith. Now, enough for me to say that if you're strong in faith, you have a responsibility. You cannot run over the weak in faith. And I see this all the time in the local church, that some people who are strong in faith, some people who have a resolve and they're standing with Christ, can't stand somebody with, who's weak in faith or who's weak over um, just a discretionary gray issue. I know some people who just run over families, if you will, for their homeschooling view, to be really honest with you. And, and, they, and rather than caring for people, they just run them over. Now, the, the Bible here, as you go back to, to 1 Thessalonians, and again, I'm thinking of Paul when he said the weak ought to bear the weaknesses of, the strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are strong. But in, in, in Thessalonians, some are weak because they lack knowledge. Some are weak because they lack courage. Some are weak, maybe just, they just don't trust God. Some are just timid or weak in faith. The ideal is they lack stability. They lack purpose is the concept. They lack endurance. And let me just say, there is a place for the weak in the body of Christ, okay? And the strong have a duty towards them. You cannot simply abandon them. You cannot simply ignore them. The weak are God's redeemed. Now you say, what's the command? Well, look at the scripture. It says there that we're to help the weak. Great little text. It means to hold them up, according to Luke 6.13. It's the idea that you help them. The the word means to to cleave to them, to, to, to give practical and spiritual help to them. You don't abandon them. You don't leave them alone. The ideal is you sustain them. You put their, their, your arms around the weak and you hold them up. In fact, the weak need to know in this body, in the greater body of Christ, that they are accepted, if you will, that they can come to you, that you need to be sensitive to them. And again, you don't have to turn there. Romans 15.1 says, We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So we come alongside them. You give them practical input. You give them spiritual input. You give them advice, if you will. And you can do this just by your personal interest in them. That's how you can do it, by your compassion towards them, by your presence with them. I remember a few years back, I had a dear friend, and... um, he went to Grace Community with me, and uh, I would say that I knew the guy 15 years, and uh, <laughs> I would say he just loved Christ. I would say he loved the Lord. He was a leader. He led a Bible study, and I had went to go pastor in another place, and he kept in leadership, and due to a series of circumstances that I won't relate all of them to you, he met a girl, and uh, you know the rest of the story. He just fell into sin with her, okay? Just, just stupid. I mean, he just was being foolish. You know, he, he, he knew better. And, and because he was a leader, you, you understand, it's like the hammer came down on him. I suppose it'd be one thing for him to come forward and tell somebody, hey, listen, I've blown it. I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm impure right now, and I don't, I'm just, I'm telling you... The, but it, he didn't. His sin was found out because the Lord has a way of revealing things. And once the sin was found out, um, the hammer really came down on this guy. And, um, and you say, what did he do? Well, he broke up with a girl. I understand. You understand. The whole life was pulled out from him, if you will, like the rug. Just, I mean, his whole life was... He worked, but then he served at church, and it was like the rug just got, you know, just pulled from him. And, um, and, he, and, and this is like six months previous. I would tell you that he, that he walked away from the sin. He walked away from the girl. And you say, what do you do with a guy like that? Well, you have to make a decision, don't you? You have to say at this point, if he walked away from it and he repented of it, you have to ask the question, 
is this guy like out of step? I said, no, he was out of step. His sin got exposed. He repented. Six months later, he's not unruly. He's this guy. Do you understand? He's weak. His whole life began to cave in. And when I caught up with him, as I came back and talked with him, he was devastated, okay? And he, if this makes sense, he actually needed to be encouraged. Do you understand? But he said that somebody said to him at the church, not everybody, but one person, quote, you are the worst failure this church has known in the last 15 years. I, I said, that guy did not say that to you. Oh, yeah, Scott. He's, I, oh, you're, wait, said he, you are the worst failure the church has known for 15 years. Now, listen, I, I'm just telling you that when I got to him, he didn't know why he needed to live anymore, okay? And you know what I mean by that. He wasn't sure why he could even carry on. Then somebody at that church said, hey, to my friend, and I couldn't believe it. You don't need to wear a suit anymore to church. I go, he he did not say that to you. Yes, Scott, he said, you don't don't have to wear a suit anymore. I said, well, why did he say that to you? He said, only leaders wear suits, and you're no longer a leader, so you don't have to wear a suit. I go, he didn't tell you that. Oh, yeah, he told me that. And, And what I'm telling you, this guy didn't have a reason to live. And and if you take that guy and admonish him, you could crush somebody like that. So as you deal with people, you need to make sure this was not a man at a step. It was six, eight, nine months ago. This was a man who needed to be propped up, you see. Remember in Corinthians when they failed to deal with the problem of incest? And then Paul finally had to write with them on the second book and said, sufficient is the time. By now, restore that man. And this guy, I've seen things and I just thought, listen, you can crush someone with a comment like that. Oh, yes, the unruly need to be checked. The faint-hearted need to be encouraged. But the weak need to be comforted. And we need to be very careful. And listen, this is not a word to elders. This is a word to you. Now, I kind of wish he was all done, but he's not really done, is he? Look down. He had to say this to us. He had to say this one last phrase, and it just gets me. You see it there at the end of verse 14? It says to be patient with what? Everyone. Now, this is, I don't make this a point. I just, it's a summary exhortation. You have a responsibility to this body to be patient with people. You say, well, what does that mean? Patient. I don't know. A lot of things might kind of roll around in your head. But the Greek word, I don't say that because um, I'm smart, okay? But I, I think we could understand it. It's a, it's a funny word. It's called, it's a compound word, macrothumia, okay? Sometimes it's translated patience is long-suffering. But what it means, the word patient, this is important for you, It means to not be, here's what it means, short-tempered. It means that you are not, you, are not to be quick-tempered. And literally, you can place it in this category, you are to have a long fuse, literally, with everyone. Don't, Don't you ever hear that sometimes if they say, man, that guy, have you ever heard that expression? He's got such a short temper. Man, that guy, once you set him off, he's got such a short fuse. Man, that guy's a firecracker. I don't know if it's a woman, mostly it's men. But, you know, you just hear that phrase. And what Paul is saying to us is that you are to be patient. You are to be macrothumia. You are to have a long fuse, if you will, with everyone. And no wonder... He says the next verse, look at it, verse 15, off this phrase. See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. 
I would just say to my own heart and to you that anger, that irritability, maybe I could put it this way, an unforgiving spirit will cause further dissension in the body of Christ. We are called to be patient. Now, you know, and I know, just to remind ourselves, Galatians says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, what? Patience. If you're walking in the Spirit, you will be patient. You say, what does it mean to be patient? Well, it means macrothumia. It means to have a long fuse. You know, it's interesting. When you look at the word patience in the Scripture, usually, it always has to do not with patience with circumstances. No. It has to do with patience with people. And so we're to be patient. I'm thinking of Ephesians 4, 2, when it says, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, showing tolerance, it says, for one another in love. Of course, you well know, as I do, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. How does it open? Love is what? Patient. First word, first verb there is patient. Macrothumia. You're called to be patient. So listen, you've got to, in this summary exhortation, look what it says in 14. Do be patient with what? Everyone. In fact, this is kind of a funny, not, I don't know if it's funny. Look over it just to the right a few pages. Go over to 2 Timothy 2.24. It's hard to know where the balance comes in. But remember Paul's exhortation now. This is to Timothy, to the pastor. He says in 2.24, 2 Timothy 2.24, that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, and what? Patient when wrong. When you look at the quality of an elder, here, the Lord's bondservant, Paul tells Timothy, you've got to be, look, it's kind of opposite how we kind of think about it. You know, we just think, hey, be firm. And, and there's times to be firm, right? But he says, you need to be kind to all. You, you need to be, he says, able to teach. You need to even be patient when you're, what, wrong. And I just think so often we're so quick to maybe fly off the handle. And Paul says, oh, no, Timothy, if you really understand, listen, you, you, you just need to not be quarrelsome. He says, verse 25, with gentleness, you, with gentleness, I love that little phrase, correct those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So listen, here's what I would say, and I, and I do kind of say this sarcastically, and I don't mean to hurt anybody, but we can talk all we want about community, Okay? And I don't know if the word's used here, but it's one of the buzzwords <laughs> in, in the greater evangelical church, and it's a fine word, but we can talk about that all we want. But if we don't love the people whom we share with communion in the body of Christ, then we're just a shallow people, right? We're, we're called to, to love people. You know, I remember, I'm almost done, let me check. I remember one time when I was at Grace Church, um, a pastor disqualified himself, okay? Enough said. He disqualified himself, and he had to be removed, and uh, we knew he had to be removed. Dr. MacArthur knew he had to be removed, and um, we kind of talked about it at the elders' meeting beforehand, okay? You'll do it. You'll say it. You, you have to say it. And, he, and, I, and I, I looked at John MacArthur, and I thought, okay, I'll say it. I could tell he wasn't excited about it at all. It's one of his staff members. And so I thought, when's he going to say this? And I happened to be in the front row with him that day, and, and he didn't say it at the beginning. He didn't say it in the middle. He didn't say before he got his message. He didn't say it right after his message. And I'm like, I was just sitting there in the front row and going, the, the elders you know, we all said we're, we're going to say it. Just got to tell the body what happened to this guy. And he finally, after he closed in prayer, and usually somebody would come up and he said in one more announcement, and he just, he, he said the most minimal version 
that he could have ever shared. You say, did, did he share it? Yeah, he, he shared it, but it was kind of like, wow. I mean, I, I mean, as a young pastor, I'm ready to call fire down out of heaven. You know what I mean? I, I'm like, you know, light that guy up for abusing that. I mean, you know, just as a young man, and I just, I was, I was kind of upset. So me and my buddy, maybe some of you know him, Rick Holland, we're just like confused. So we were, we're in our office the next day. It was a guy that we worked closely with. And so we decided to go knock on John's door. Help us. Come on, guys. Well, what can I do for you? Well, we really didn't like the announcement you made yesterday. We, we just want to know why you didn't just breathe fire down and brimstone and just, you know, go out, you know, just. And I, he was so calm and he was so gentle. And he just said to me, men, I'm trying to preserve him for the future. And I, and I just thought as I walked out of the office that day, he accomplished what he needed to do by way of announcement. And I just thought, I felt like those two sons of Zebedee, Rick and I, who, who came, you know, and wanted to call fire down because this person wouldn't receive Jesus in this village. And I just walked out of there and I just thought, I just was, I thought, Scott, you're arrogant, me. Because, you know, and, and now as I see this passage, I thought, you know, I needed to be patient with that brother. Oh, the sin happened. He lost his job. That was understood. But I just thought we need to be, as it says there in Thessalonians, patient with everyone. And he sought to preserve them. I recognized my own error. But let me ask you, as you think about people whom you interact with, does one of these exhortations come to mind that you need to find somebody? Do you need to admonish somebody who is unruly? Do you need to, in today, at the lunch, at the anniversary, encourage somebody who was faint-hearted? Do you need to help somebody who's weak? Do you need to be patient with another? If so, look in. You know, sometimes my only hope in the midst of this is I look back, is this not encouraging? on the life of Jesus Christ, who perfectly modeled, perfectly, every one of these occasions. To the Pharisees, he admonished. To the woman caught in sin, he encouraged. To the people who crucified him on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they what do. And so Christ becomes our example. And living this passage out, we're looking at him as the author and the perfecter of our faith. And then sometimes I just have to remember that, that we, I, we're the under-shepherds. He's the great shepherd. And I long for the day where he'll be over all and we will no longer ever mishandle some of God's sheep. Amen? And so in our life, you look to Christ. I look to Christ. And I, you know, I just pray, even when I'm talking with people, Lord, what would Christ do here? What's the condition of the soul? Then what's the command that I need to give? And I just interact with people all the time, whether it's your own children or your own extended family. Think on this, but have the mind have the heart of Jesus Christ who always, but I don't say that just because he's perfect. He was, he was, he was fully dependent on his father to carry out exactly with whom he needed to. He rebuked the disciples when he needed to, and he said, O ye of little faith, but he never harshly rebuked them like he did the Pharisees. On the other hand, he came back to, what do you think he could have done to Peter after he fell? He could have devastated him. But what did he do? If you love me, what? Feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. And, and he restored him to become, at that point, as you know in the apostolic witness, the greatest testimony there was. 
And so listen, we need to have a life that would model the life of the Lord Jesus in any and every circumstance and live out the gospel. You know, if we're going to live the gospel out, then we live it out with people. And we live it out with people who are at various places and stages in their Christian growth. And they all call for a little bit of a different response. May God give us grace. Why don't you bow your head? I'm going to ask if the men can come forward at this point. As the men are coming forward and as you bow your head just for a moment, would you just take a, a, a thought here on this text? And just uh, how have you handled people in the church? How have you handled people who are so close? Maybe, maybe you need to go like I did and apologize to somebody. I don't know if that's the case, but maybe you need to. If that's the case, then spend a moment in quiet confession. And also, as we go to the elements here just in a moment we're going to be reminded of the father's love for us and when you think that God the father sent his only begotten son to redeem as John has said in his testimony a people who are sinners who had their fist in the face of God then we ought to love as he loved. And we ought to love as Jesus Christ loved. In fact, it says so clearly, beloved in 1 John 4, 11, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. And in that same text, it said, By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If God redeemed you, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through His propitiatory death in 1 John 2.2 on your behalf, then you need to love the way in which He loved. Take a moment to reflect on that. And as we pass these elements, the bread first, of course, the, the broken body, When we say the broken body, the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Would you be reminded of his patience with you? His long-suffering with you? Maybe just even as John had shared earlier in his testimony, God's only sovereign. What if he would have died that night? Could have. Yet God spared him. God redeemed him. And he'll do so with you. Thinking of Paul... John read earlier, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. But he continued, yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate, here's our word, his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. If you're in Christ this morning, it's his perfect patience that did not commit you to destruction the moment you breathed. Thank Christ 
for his work on the cross. Thank him for the gospel. Father, I pray as these elements are passed amongst us that you would remind us of the Father's love for us and melt our heart that if you loved us like that, then we also ought to love one another. We ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.